ladies, we have a big announcement. I friends, we are not only one of the most downloaded podcast Down Syndrome podcasts with the most reviews and pretty good uh runtime? Yes. I think that's the word, sure. right? Five yeah, I think we're more than five years consistent having podcasts. We are now an award winning podcast. Dun, 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 dun. Congratulations, ladies. This year, the Lucky Few Podcast won the Media Award at the National Down Syndrome Congress Convention. Holla. So good. Anyways, congratulations, ladies. This has been the best. This podcast is one of my all-time favorite things that we get to do. I feel so honored and thrilled, and I love love it because it's with you two. It would be nothing without you. It's so fun. I feel the same. Same. So good. Same. now we're an award-winning podcast. Say it again. Award-winning. <laughs> so we're going to have to take it serious, ladies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So things are really going to change around here. Let's see. That's right. Get it together. Oh, my goodness. Back to school, y'all. It's here. It made it. I need I need at least four more weeks of summer. I'd prefer six. Or just a life of summer living. Is that is that an option, y'all? And I know that there's a lot of parents who are like, get my kids back in school, and I am for you too. Um, two things can be true at once. <laughs> but I am not ready. And yet all of my kids are in school today. And this is this is the thing about life. It just keeps happening around us and to us, and we just step into the rhythms of it. And today, today, we're going to shift some narratives and we're going to shout worth of people with Down syndrome. You are listening to the Lucky View podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Vaish Sarathi. We had her back. We had her on the show twice already, so we're so excited to welcome her back. She's going to be discussing. We're going to be talking about counterintuitive ideas to jumpstarting learning, reading comprehension, and so much more. We're grateful to have her on the podcast today. We love having our favorite guests back on. So let's get to it, friends. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. Hey, podcast listeners and friends, did you guys know that September 9th in New York City, the National Down Syndrome Society Buddy Walk is going to be happening? And did you know that the lucky few is going to be there? That's right. We are so thrilled about attending this year's National Down Syndrome Society Buddy Walk in the one and only New York City. It's going to be at Central Park. Not only will we be present with a booth selling all of our gear, signing books, come say hey, but our very own Mason Hope R.P. Avis is one of this year's grand marshals. We are so honored and thrilled and excited. If you want to join our team, and we hope you do, you can meet us there in New York City or just become a team member virtually. Help support the National Down Syndrome Society. Head over to NDSS.org and click all the different links. Get to team the lucky few and join today. We cannot wait to join the party in Central Park in New York City on September 9th, and we hope that you will be there too. Okay, before we dive into this conversation with Vaish, I'm going to read a review from another incredible listener. We love you listeners. And this is from Love the Knot, K-N-O-T, Love the Knot 613. And this person says, while raising two little girls, two and under... I don't have much time to sit and listen. I want you to know that when I do get the time, your voices are a calming force in my life. Our sweet girl, Aggie, was born with Down syndrome at the end of January, and she is such a joy in our lives. Still, as you all bring up in your episodes, there are so many tough things to navigate when it comes to raising our babies with Down syndrome. We live in a small rural area that has few resources and even fewer people to connect with. So listening to you all helps me to feel less alone when things get tough. This has been so very important for me in our journey, and I hope you continue to share and connect. This matters. You matter. Our kids matter. All right. Love the Knot 613. Yes and amen. Thank you for that review. Listeners, don't forget 
If you love the podcast, to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, maybe we'll read it here next week. If you want to jump back and listen to past episodes with Vaish, you can go to episode 79, Understanding Functional Nutrition for Our Kids with Down Syndrome, and episode 80, Assuming Intelligence in Our Kids with Down Syndrome, and you'll get so much more goodness from Vaish. All right, friends and listeners, we are here today with Dr. Vaish Sarathi. We are so grateful and excited to have her back on the show today. Dr. Sarathi is a functional nutrition practitioner and math and science educator. She comes to nutrition and education with the mission to reframe health, cognition, and learning for children with Down syndrome or autism. Vice believes that sound nutrition and an equal education are the birthright of every child, yes and amen. Her perspective is shaped by her autistic, non-speaking 16-year-old son with Down syndrome, who is a published poet and author and an incredible human being. Dr. Strathy, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here again. Thank you for the invite, and please call me Vaish. Vaish, okay. <laughs> thank you, Vaish. We are so excited. You, What you're doing in the world, in the Down syndrome space, in the disability space, is not a lot of people, I don't see it a lot. Um, so I'm really excited to have this conversation with our listeners today. And I would love if you would start with an, a brief introduction, a little bit of background for those of us who are, for those of our listeners who are new to you. Yeah. And I usually start with introducing myself as Sid's mom, but you already introduced Sid. And honestly, that's where a lot of my perspective, that's where a lot of my knowledge, a lot of my learning comes from the journey that I've shared with Sid. And like I, like you said, Sid is non-speaking which is really one of the most defining things in his life in, um, mm-hmm. in an amazing way. And we can talk about that later. But um, I was trained as a chemist. I have a PhD in chemistry, but um, I moved into the field of teaching chemistry once Sid was born. So I've been a math and chemistry tutor for about um, 13 years now. And I teach um, neurotypical kids, students, and I teach uh, neurodivergent students. And nowadays, I actually teach a lot of non-speakers. Um, because I mean, it's all about if you have a means of communication, then um, you can learn anything. And um, I'm also a functional nutrition consultant. So you can say that I come to learning because I really think that my ultimate goal is for every kid to get to their potential in learning. I think of it as going from the inside out. So from the inside, it's whatever you need from a nutrient perspective for your brain growth. And from the outside, this would be however I can tailor education so that you, the child, can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, how old is Sid? Sid is 16. 16. And you have other children? I have two kids. Uh, my okay. daughter is, um, uh, sorry, I'm blanking out on my daughter. She's her. She's part of it. I tend to be Sid focused. She accuses me of that and she might be right. But uh, she's going to be 13. She's um, almost 13 and she um, she's neurotypical. Okay. Yeah. And can you remember when Sid was born... Did you, was this mindset of how Sid will learn, did you always have that or did he kind of shape that for you? And do you have a moment of this is when things really started to shift for you? Yeah, I kind of started with a lot of very blind faith that, you know, I was I was hanging on to this idea that I'd read somewhere that we use only 10% of our capacity. If I can only find the remaining 90%, maybe Sid can be typical. It was a, I honestly, at this point, I would say it was a very ableist kind of a thing. I was like, Mm -hmm. yes, I can fix Sid mentality when he was young and it was also a lot of ego from where I come from as a scientist and my husband's an engineer I was like um there's no way that there's any intellectual delay possible here so there there was it wasn't the right mentality but um I often share that as Sid was two and three and he was not speaking he was not responding not making eye contact not gesturing not pointing not showing any signs of understanding I kind of gave up on that And I felt like, okay, it's time to get a reality check. And this child is not just delayed. He's severely, severely delayed. And that's what everybody was telling us. We even got numbers. I don't know if they still give out numbers of um, our early interventions gave us a 0.1 percentile of um, intelligence. As in Sid, 99.9% of his peers are more, um, what's the word, intellectually capable than him. So we were we were like given this messaging and then I, I was like, okay, let me just accept the facts. And um, 
my aha moment was when Sid was six years old or probably hitting seven, that we had pulled him out of a public school system that was not working for him. And I'd put him in an online public school. And the online public school made us take a um, diagnostic test. And I remember laughing in their faces like, my son doesn't even know what a diagnostic test is. There's no way I can implement this test. I have no means. I have nothing. I don't know what, what to do. He doesn't even understand when I call his name. What do you mean diagnostic test? Just give us some material and I'll see if I can read it out to him. And they insisted and they said, just do it. And they gave us a multiple choice test. Now, I had no idea what to do. And I was like, you really don't understand how delayed my son is. You, you don't know what you're asking. I have no idea to this day why they insisted. And I think this is one of the rare cases where a school was presuming competence and the parent was not. So mm. in this complete flip of my current reality. But I said, I took the test and I remember this. Um, in my mind, it was this complex pattern question uh, appropriate for a regular second grader, typical second grader. So I read out the question and I had no idea what to do. So I, I, um, what's the word for scissored out the, cut out the choices and put them in front of him. And I remember Sid lifted his hand. He couldn't point, right? So he had no skills and he batted at the right answer. As of course, like my thing was, this has to be a fluke. But I feel like if I did one thing good in my life, I didn't ask him to repeat that. I just moved to the next question and a couple of questions. This wasn't consistent. Because his motor system was um, not the best, is not the best. But he batted at the right answer a couple of times. And I was like, oh, my God, there's I'm missing something huge. I'm, wow. Yeah. And that um, that it was just two questions, but that really shifted my mind. I was like, I'm looking at the wrong thing in the wrong way. And there on after that, I heard of this technique called um, you know, we heard of letter boarding techniques. This is the one thing that looks like this. I know it's not a video podcast, but um, we just heard of low-tech AC, the techniques called RPM. There are more techniques now. And we started on it when he was seven. And I remember we going to this practitioner and Sid, um, she asked him what lives on a farm and he pointed to the letters like D-O-G. And he was seven and I was crying because Sid spelled dog. And um, it was, those were the two moments that was like transforming. And, and then we made very slow progress, but we moved from there. Yeah. Wow. And I, I would imagine as a scientist, your mind just goes to salt, like figuring out what to do next, how to find ways for him to show his intelligence and communicate and mm -hmm. learn. Um, I feel like that. I'm I'm imagining listeners can relate. I even feel like that with my kids. I have two kids with Down syndrome who are nine and fifteen right now, and there's moments where I'm under we're like in a rhythm where I'm understanding how how they're understanding things or how they're learning, and then there's moments or seasons of, oh, I just wish I knew how you would how you, to get you to know this. Like I know there's something in your mind. I know there's intelligence there that is counter to the intelligence that our society understands, recognizes as intelligent, right? I know that's there, but how do we get to it? How do we get to it? Um, which I think is such a mystery and so beautiful that you had those moments. Mm, yeah. So rad. So good. So then, okay. So then how did Sid, at what point did you introduce the nutrition piece? Like, and at what point did that enter into the equation? That was, so Sid had, um, uh, you know, his gut health was always a little iffy. And when he was four to four and a half, he had these periods of time where he would be laughing throughout the day. And, you know, doctors would say that at least he's laughing, he's not crying. So, but it was kind of a maniacal laughter. You could clearly tell there was something wrong. And it took us a visit to a naturopath to um, understand that this could be some sort of, a, you know, a fungal overgrowth in his gut and treating him for fungal, um, uh, treating him with an antifungal actually really helped uh, temporarily. And then it came back. And then we kept going back and forth. And then I was starting to read up about diets that could prevent uh, fungal overgrowth and that could just help the gut feel a little bit more stable. And that we were in a really bad space with respect to his regulation. So this was like, I, um, well, of course, Sid was, is, was and is autistic and wasn't making eye contact and all that. But he was also in this very um, 
detached space where he was completely out of touch with um, with us and you know laughing throughout the day and clearly really uncomfortable clearly like in some sort of misery that he was not able to communicate and then the diets were not an immediate fix but between 6 to 8 months of being on a um, an anti-inflammatory diet a lot of these um symptoms i won't call them behaviors because i kind of like those that word is so overused these symptoms came down and he's been on an anti-inflammatory diet for the last um if he was four and a half i guess for the last 10 11 years and we've reduced the restrictions a little bit but for the most part he seems to thrive um and he says that he now he's in a place where he is you know he's deciding what he wants to eat and what he doesn't want to eat he has self um chosen this diet as well Hmm. Okay, I then let's start talking about back to school a little bit. Um thank yeah. you for sharing all that about Sid. And so a lot of us are well by the time this comes out, every most people are back in school um or will be trickling back to school. Mm-hmm. And you have some pretty incredible counterintuitive ideas to how to jump start learning. And some of that is a, is with food and the gut and things. Can you talk to us a little bit about that as we're entering into like educational milestones set by IEPs traditional guidelines tell us a little about of these counterintuitive ideas that help our kiddos jump start their learning yeah so my my nutrition ideas are very intuitive so uh, there but the but the learning strategies you're right are counterintuitive and i just want to uh, i'll get the nutrition piece out of the way because um, a lot of the listeners already know know about the sugar piece and everything but i i really think one of the things that we're missing is um is the children have a lot of you know we're missing this idea of blood sugar control so if you just um look up symptoms of low and high blood sugar there's a lot of overlap to you know reduced focus lot less energy um loss of emotional regu- less emotional regulation and all of that so i really think just basically increasing the amount of protein and kind of ditching the refined sugar at least for breakfast is an excellent idea but um mm-hmm. you know but i'll move on so i think if your child's having a lot of mood issues emotional disregulation lack of focus i always look at breakfast and just try to like kind of fine tune breakfast so that's something to keep in mind and that may already as you're hearing it that may not be counterintuitive that may just feel very like it's something that mm-hmm. people suspect anyway mm-hmm. yeah okay real, real quick before we put nu- the nutrition behind us and we have we episode 79 we have understanding functional nutrition with our kids with down syndrome we've done that interview with you so you can go back and listen to that friends and then you can follow we'll give you all the links to follow Vaish and see all the things that she's doing that are really helpful in this but for parents listening I'm, i would imagine that you talk to parents who it's like i've got this picky eater and we have all these other battles we're fighting and the food thing feels impossible like what is a piece of advice you're saying breakfast focus on breakfast what are some other little like do this one thing now that would be helpful and you're speaking specifically for picky eating picky eating and yeah with our kids with down syndrome right all kids but specifically for picky eating with yeah. kids with down syndrome i actually interviewed um uh the founder of sos feeding and um i have uh, i'll share that with you later but something that i've learned is that posture is um let's get into that later but i think just developing textural tolerance for food so picky eating for kids with down syndrome can be a lot of um, it can be a really long game so it's very hard to say one thing but i have often seen okay. that if if we're not eating clean it's very hard to um, get out of picky eating because sugar is addictive if your child is sensitive to dairy mm-hmm. or gluten those can be really addictive foods we're in the presence of addictive foods it's very hard to bring in variation in foods because you kind of want to go back to the same thing over and over again um it's really hard to bring okay. in that so i think that be okay with making really small changes see where you can move from um a refined diet to a whole foods based diet whatever your child is eating already but just move in slowly and bring in them textural variation but before that um if if your child's posture is poor or if your child's you know breathing isn't clear um i learned from the founder of sos feeding that um a child's priority is not to eat it is to breathe so if if you're sitting in a way mm. where breathing and posture um are impacted then it's really hard to address feeding so just making sure that they're comfortable and they're they're able to sit in a comfortable position while while eating so it's a pretty long um there is no quick answer unfortunately 
it's it's a lot of things but um and i'm i'm going to look up that resource and send it to you in the end of this yeah okay okay thank you thank you okay so then let's now talk about these counterintuitive ideas you have for jump starting learning okay um i know you'd mentioned ieps right so you'd mentioned um yeah um, I can't remember what you said, but something from, from we're going back to school, we're looking at IEPs, how do these counterintuitive strategies fit in? Um, the answer is that they don't fit in. So everything I'm going to say is going to sound a little <laughs> off in the beginning. So just, just keep your minds, whoever's listening, keep your minds open. And um, uh, the thing is, school is meant to be a mass system of learning where things are, it's industrially produced. Like when I say things learning or uh, students are, are taught in a, um, you know, in a specific pattern. And when you have a child um, who's neurodivergent, and that's all of our children, even within Down syndrome, every kid is learning differently. Our school isn't really designed to make how, whatever you may call it, you can call it an individual education plan, but it's really very hard to make it individual. So a lot of IEPs focus on behavior and a lot of IEPs focus on, you know, time-based goals and repetition. A lot of IEPs like, he's going to say the count from one to five, uh, three times successfully. And um, I think counterintuitive idea number one, for a child who's really struggling to learn and has experienced a lot of failure, repetition can be the enemy of learning. When I first started teaching okay. Sid, the first time I taught something, his eyes would light up and I would be so excited as if paying attention to addition. And then I would teach addition over and over again. And then he would be like, uh, he would look away. He, would, he was actually answering questions at this time. It started pointing and he was answering addition questions correctly and he completely stopped. And in my mind, I was like, oh, no, his memory isn't working well. I need to start all over again. That's what they were doing in school, too. Um, I remember I think his teacher said he pointed from A to Z in first grade. And then she asked him again, and he didn't. And you're talking about children with severe motor deficits. At least my son has severe. Most kids, um, whether with Down syndrome or autistic, have some level of a motor deficit. And they're using all their energy to, to marshal all this um, regulation and energy to point from A to Z, and you're asking them to do this again. This is like me running a marathon. And you saying, well, I didn't actually, I'm not sure you can do that. Can you go run that again? I'm not going to run that again. Mm -hmm. Like either you believe me or forget about it. Right. So that wow. that's, yeah. it is like that. So when you have these cognitive goals, which are actually motor goals, because you're asking a child to demonstrate through their motor system three times, this isn't trivial. So what I learned is that when Sid was zoning out, I had this kind of um, aha moment again. It's like, maybe I should stop teaching addition and try multiplication. It felt very counterintuitive even to me, but he wasn't paying it. He wasn't looking at me. And then I just said, okay, ditch addition. Let's start multiplication. And then he looked back. And then I would go for two weeks mm. and then he would be like, yeah, I'm done. And then I would start exponent. So it so happened that within the frame, I was going so fast that in the frame of three or four months, I had... Um, Sid, I had taught Sid how to go from the decimal to the binary system because I was like, okay, let's move now, let's move now. And it worked. Wow. And I, I think that um, two things are the enemy of learning for kids that are, you know, um, that learn differently. One is repetition. This doesn't mean you never repeat. But in the beginning, when the child is still developing a love for learning, when the child is still figuring out whether they enjoy it or not, repeat, blind repetition can can really kill interest and motivation. And the second thing is mm -hmm. um, testing all the time. I've had parents come to me mm -hmm. for consults and they're saying, I'm teaching my son, but he when I ask him questions, um, I don't get the right answer. And this technique has really worked well for me. And I tell them that you're you're asking too many questions and answering a question isn't a simple task. It's It's a lot of for children whose speech isn't good, they're really, again, marshalling all their effort and trying out how do I get the words? I might understand it. How do I get my entire system to function so I can answer your question? And then I have to get ready for the next question and the next question. And then now I'm so stressed about answering the next question that I'm probably not paying attention to what you're saying in the middle because now this is a performance anxiety. It's too much. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just talking to this, lady, to this mom and um, I said, stop asking questions. Just teach. Stop. Stop asking. For now, just stop asking. And she stopped. 
And she said that her son's anxiety about learning disappeared and his interest in learning increased. And um, will it work in a school system? Probably not because it's built around testing. So um, for Sid and for many of my students, I have not seen that learning necessarily happens in a school system. This isn't to say that everybody pull your kids out of school because school, um, there's a lot of functions of school. There's the social part. There's the um, daycare part. There's the, <laughs> there's so many things. But And learning yeah, can yeah. happen later when the child is more regulated and ready to, and when the school has understood the child's needs. But in the beginning, for a lot of kids, learning happens outside school. Mm. It's so interesting hearing you say that. I think back to when Macy came home in those first three years and where we're at in the state and we're in California, you know, they're sending an occupational therapist and an early start teacher into the house and we didn't get, and then a physical therapist and every, from this, from the get go, it is all testing, you know, it's like teach, test, teach, test, teach, test. And our Macy is pretty adverse to mm-hmm. learning <laughs> and I didn't know to know to teach, not test until much later. And I look back, I feel like there's an undoing that still is taking place that I also in that need to be more patient. Like she's needed to have time to detox from a way of learning that was forced upon her that made her not want to learn that I just didn't know as a parent, right? It's like, no, this is what you do. And everyone, and, and all the experts are coming in that are teaching my kid this way. And this is what school's saying. And there's a woman, Mrs. Um, Terry Brown, who we've had on the podcast, and she's just huge on teach, don't test. And she's got a program that we do. And it's all about having your kid be a happy learner, that they want to be oh, a I learner. Yeah. And I, you would love Terry's stuff. You guys, you guys would be fast friends. Awesome. I'm going to make a note of Terry. Yeah. 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 And she, we started that program when Macy was in, I don't know, maybe she was in third grade by then. And Macy's going into ninth grade. And I feel from my perspective that we're still detoxifying her from, she's still like adverse when she steps into a classroom. She's adverse to learning. Mm -hmm. Um, She'll do Mrs. Brown stuff. She loves it. You know, she'll, she'll do all that. So it's, 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 um, I guess all that to say, it's disappointing that the system is what it is for our kids, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and that it, the, you and Mrs. Brown, these ideas and concepts aren't readily available to us when we get a diagnosis. You know, mm-hmm. we get the stories of your kid with Down syndrome, don't worry that they have Down syndrome because look at all that they're going to be able to do. And it's like, okay, let's shoot for the stars and make sure mm-hmm. that our kid is just like kids without Down syndrome instead of this idea of, oh no, they're actually very different learners. And they're going to be an amazing human and they're going to be their best self. And here's some real practical tools to help them become their best self as a person with a cognitive disability, not become like someone who doesn't have Down syndrome. And I think, I hope we get there someday, you know, for like for all you parents listening who have a little tiny baby, listen, this is so, such good information to have from the start what Vaish is saying here. So yeah, I, I was just saying, and it's very counterintuitive. So it's hard to jump in having been educated in the system that we're in. It really does as a parent, there's a lot of like having to reprogram myself. Yes. Right. And I think that along with the teach don't test. Yeah. So part of the reprogramming that I love that. And then um, the second thing that I, that I, um, you know, talk about a lot is this whole testing, like, like, you know, we talked about this, this is really performance and performance is very stressful for children. We're really looking for um, validation for ourselves, whether we're teachers or parents, we're just looking, oh, my kid can learn. But if you drop this idea of needing the validation that, I mean, if you can just trust that your child has learned in some form uh, that, that, you know, that goes along with their neurology. They have learned it. It may not look exactly like you're learning, but they have learned it. You can actually go really far ahead. And um, which is the really concrete example of this is that is is Sid learning to convert between decimal and binary. Now, he eventually decided he wanted nothing to do with math and he's he's um, like, you know, only learning poetry. Um, that's the third thing I'll talk about. But the second thing was um, move on. I was talking to just move on. You don't need to teach. Uh, addition seems to be this kind of a 
people are obsessed with teaching addition for years. I can't count the number of kids that have come to me that have been learning addition for three years, four years, five years, six years throughout their life. Their kids, college going students with Down syndrome are still doing addition in math. There is nothing that great about addition. Okay, so there is or subtraction. And if I would say that if any concept, if this happens to be addition for a lot of kids, one of the most horrible cases I'd heard was a girl, a non-speaking girl with Down syndrome. Her uh, special ed classroom used to teach her one number every year. When she was 13, she learned to count to 13. And I was, uh, there's, I mean, I, to me, there's nothing more cruel than than that because it's like, yeah, yeah um, I don't, because she had no way of showing that she understood. Um, but if your child, if you've been teaching anything for more than a few weeks, and if you think your child hasn't learned, it's simply because we may not have the means of figuring out whether our children have learned. We may not have that appropriate communication strategy going back and forth. It's time to move on forward, not backward. Our intuitive mm. thinking is that if they're not answering addition questions, it's back to teaching numbers. No, it's probably back to and forward to teaching something else. And it doesn't have mm. to be multiplication. You can just teach math and teach poetry, but it's really important to keep moving on. We're in this um, place where we think our children need a lot of repetition. If they come to you and tell you they need repetition, go for it. But our children mostly need way less repetition. Repetition is for memorization. Not everything needs to be memorized. You may simply need to lay the foundational blocks so you can learn other things. We don't, everything doesn't have mm. to be memorized. So we're really focused on rote memory a lot. And it's okay if your child doesn't have a few addition facts memorized. Maybe, maybe there's, that'll lead to something else. So lay the blocks, move on, lay the next foundation, move on. And I think that's, that's one of the hardest things for me to get people to do is to just move on. Hmm. Okay, let's put this in real practice. So let's trans transfer this over to reading comprehension. Yeah. Um, so reading comprehension, showing the, an ability to read. Okay. And I'm going to give mm -hmm. you a case sample. Her name is Macy. She's my daughter. <laughs> and um, she is... I was just saying to my husband, I, she's doing some great programs. Mrs. Brown's so happy to learn program mm -hmm. is really incredible. And we're still, I feel stuck with her as a 15 year old reading sight words, reading like I can see books and, and that's where we are. Um, and what is, what does moving on look like then? Like a foundation has been laid of these are sight words and sight word is is rote memory like it's a memorization of a word mm -hmm. and how do we move past to like how do we move how do we move forward what would you do you separate the, the skills of when everything that we're talking about here is multiple okay. skills when we say some somebody's reading we're talking about the being able to decode symbols that's one thing but it's also eye mm -hmm. tracking okay it's also the ability to track from here to here that is an enormous fine motor skill, okay? And children that have low muscle tone have low muscle tone everywhere, okay? In the gut, that's why we have to eat a healthy diet. In the eyes, um, and you know, it. I'm still teaching for 16 years. I've been teaching my son to track his eyes and he's still working on it. But if I wait for him to read in order to give him complex literature, he is still going to be reading, um, what did you say? See and learn books? Is, is that Right, or like I see, like I see the cat, I see the dogs or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and I have seen kids that are stuck there because we're waiting for a motor skill in order to teach a cognitive skill. And they are separate parts of the brain. Language is different from the motor part. So and our kids struggle with uh, we know they struggle with motor my, and some kids more than the others. But it's the best analogy I can give is if I went and learned Chinese today and I'm decoding letters and I'm trying to track things and I'm. Uh, I sound out the whole line one by one. And then you said, okay, what did that story say? I would probably have no idea. Yeah, okay, yeah. because I've spent all my energy in decoding and just moving my eyes back and forth. What I have done for Sid and what many other non-speakers do is move to audio books. Because if I waited, he would still, I would not be working on his language. And mm -hmm. a lot of people ask me, how does Sid have the language he does? How's he, how's he writing like this? Audiobooks. Information has to come in through different parts of our senses and the more varied information we can use. Third, uh, this is not counterintuitive, but it's one of the pillars. It's variation. The more different types of input you can use, your brain's actually processing a lot of really rich information. It really helps in learning. 
So I don't rely on reading for my son to get books. So he, yeah. um, I've figured out that he's probably getting really bored. He needs to read um, more complex literature. So in the second grade, we went to Visit of Oz. And audiobooks are awesome because you have these phenomenal voice actors that are doing all these different voices and you get this really rich information. So work on reading as a skill, but don't wait for that to develop in order for, I, I don't want to call it reading, for, lang for external fiction and nonfiction. I mean, literally, if, if you ask anybody where, you know, what your primary mode of growth has been, it's most people are going to say reading. Can, but yeah, reading doesn't happen, have to happen through reading. Let me put it that way. There's, uh, yeah, oh, eyes are not the only form of reading. I mean, um, visually impaired people mm. get books all the time, right? So, but just because, I mean, we have mm. these artificial ideas in our mind that reading has to happen through a book. It doesn't have to happen through a book. And um, mm. um, my son's right now listening to a young adult novel called, because uh, I, was, I just put his headphones on, he's listening to this book called Daddy is the Great is Not Okay. And it's a 16 to 18 year old rated book. It has um, age appropriate book and it has advanced language. It helps build his brain. It helps him connect with his uh, teenage peers because, you know, his social life is still a struggle. And there's so much that books do for us. So don't wait for reading to happen in order for your child to read. Be open to different modes of modes of reading, whether that's you reading mm -hmm. to your child, whether that's your child listening to an audiobook. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, listening to audio needs uh, you need to it it takes a lot of effort too so it you know you might have to start with like 10 seconds build up to a minute and then mm -hmm. you can build up to a few hours of listening okay all right here we go in my uh, my follow-up questions in my um yeah brain that's been trained with this without these ideas so my my first question was going to be so we're we switched to audiobooks how do you <laughs> This is the wrong thing to ask. Okay. <laughs> How do you test for knowledge? <laughs> but we're not testing. You we don't. don't. Okay. You don't. Yeah. You just. You test for interest. You don't test for knowledge. You look for interest. Test is the wrong word. You, you look, look for, for interest. interest. So when a child is able to hang. So first you make that a shared idea. So in the beginning, it wasn't like Sid was walking around with his headphones. He and I would drive to places and we would have like half an hour and we'd be listening to it. So it'd kind of be a little bit of a captive audience. But eventually. I could tell through his body language that he was really into the story. And then now, um, like, for example, now I'm, it builds so much knowledge and so much language in a specific form. Now he has very specific interests. Mm -hmm. So there was a time when um, there were some books that I would play and I could tell that he was getting restless. And then I could tell, oh, he doesn't like this kind of book. I would have to try a different kind. This kind of language doesn't appeal to him and so on. So it's you. Overall, for all learning, you don't test for knowledge, you look for interest. Okay. And that's great because um, children that learn differently have what we call splinter skills, which is a lot, when we're neurotypical, we kind of have like sort of balanced interest in a lot of areas. Even so, some of us have more interest in something than the other. But when, when you're neurodivergent, I've seen, at least from my observation, that kids have like extreme interest um, in some areas and extremely low interest in the other areas. And actually a great thing because it allows you to be extremely good in, and way better than other people in mm -hmm. some things. So further learning when you like, like when I'm working with Sid now, teaching him math is like um, pulling teeth because he's just not interested. It's at this point, it's not capability. It's like, yeah. I don't want to do it. I just want to learn language. So, um, so we're still navigating school. He's in 11th grade. So that's going to be a hard thing. But once he finishes school, we're probably never going to look yeah. back at math. Um, okay. So. Oh, gosh. It's yeah. it's so, it all makes so much sense. And it feels, as I'm listening, I'm trying to figure out how to put it into practice, which I guess is so much in life, right? Like, how do we put it all into practice? Yeah. And, and I want to say that a lot of it is going to feel like something that you that we're going to have to compromise on a lot of things on traditional measures of success because this is not going to look like a child who's going and acing exams this is not going to look like a child who is just like their neurotypical peers this is going to look like a parent who's extremely comfortable with their child's specific intelligence their ability to and and they're willing to really put in everything to in in that mm -hmm. narrow field and be okay with um you know with with not meeting the traditional yeah. goals, with the IEPs not mm -hmm. working out, and yeah. so on. Like, 
Yeah. With the reading thing, as we're talking about, like the, you're building these different foundations and you're, you had said one of the strategies is audiobooks and giving our, our learners opportunities with reading through audiobooks. Are there other strategies you have for actual like word recognition? I don't. I've just noticed that it happened because a lot of the people I work with are spellers, okay. which means that in order to communicate, they have to spell to communicate because they're not speakers. And because the primary means of communication is spelling as they okay. start there, the word recognition happens um, by itself. But the one thing that I did with Sid that really worked well when he was before all of this, when he was three or four years old, was I was looking at um, uh, Glenn Doman's books and uh, he, he was talking about fast flashing cards and when Sid was three, I had these like cards with like these big words written that I would fast flash. So th- this is it's from what I can remember, it's supposed to be a very short exercise. Like you just flash five uh, cards and then you go away. So I did over time notice that short bursts of activity. So again, there's really no repetition. It's fast, it's quick, and then you move on. Led to a lot of learning. So um, phonetics wow. didn't work for us that well. So for us, it was, but I, I've heard that it does work for other kids. I'm not going to yeah. say that it doesn't. But what I'm going to say is I didn't focus that Mm -hmm. much on teaching spelling and reading as much as working with it. Like, okay, here are some words. Just look at them. And these are what they are. And never test it. So it just, the patterns just formed. Okay. Um, And I think too, and you can speak to this, for me as a parent, there's a timeline to it that I haven't said the timeline, but everything's moving a lot slower right? Like the progress is slower than I, than my unnamed timeline. Does that make sense? And do do you find parents feel that way? I do. And usually what I'm thinking of, and I'm trying to make this a little less vague, I don't want to come across as being, giving very vague, um, you know, I don't want to speak in generalities, but it is slow when you're focused on one modality, like We're talking about reading in a specific way. But if you allow for the child to learn in different ways, okay, for example, I don't do visual stuff with Sid that much. I just, uh, with reading, that would be audiobooks or or it would be pointing or it would be uh, other means of communication and learning. Then it's not that slow. Okay. So uh, we have to kind of break from tradition a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's that breaking from tradition. It's like an unlearning for for me as the as the parent. Yeah, I think reading is one of the biggest um, um, hurdles. One of the biggest, like you know, um, mm. unnecessary hurdles in kids' lives. So talk about that more. What do you What do you mean? You know, it means that we're so fixated on wanting our children to read that we keep that as a okay. gateway for other skills to develop. So because everything, if you want to read, like if I want to teach, if you want to teach your kid, um, um, I'm just uh, biology, I'm going to assume that most parents will think that, oh, my child can't even read. How are they going to learn biology? But, you know, so how are they going to get with the textbook? I don't need to read to learn biology. So, um, you know, so if if we get rid of these, like if you really toned, when when I work with parents, I often ask, like we rotate backwards. I'm missing a lot of words in my speech today, but um, if we back up a little bit, we'll see mm-hmm. that there is a limiting assumption that everybody has. Reading is one of the hugest limiting assumptions that we think we need to read in order to get to higher levels of academics. Um, not in today's world. And um, hmm. yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Especially with, oh, I just listened to this podcast where they were talking about AI mm-hmm. and how you can take a text like AI for our, our neurodivergent learners and how you can take a text and go into chat GBT and say, can you make this ninth grade Shakespeare at a first grade reading level? And can you read it out loud or whatever? Like that, what are, what AI can do potentially the doors it can open for our learners to have access mm-hmm. to things is pretty incredible. Have you worked with AI at all? This is a real left field <laughs> question. Okay. No, I haven't. I've only worked, uh, I, I mean, not with Sid, just for myself, I've been exploring, but yeah. I haven't actually worked with AI per se. And um, in fact, the lesser access your child has, the more, um, 
um, more sensory and motor handicaps that are, your child has, the more you find that there's so many doors open. Because I think if, if Sid had been even remotely speaking, we wouldn't have accessed any of this because we were kind of in this box hmm. where nothing was accessible to us. It's that, that was when we discovered the world of spelling. And um, I know there was a question about resources earlier. So even if your child is speaking, um, you know, I would, um, I would suggest checking out this website. It's called IASC, I-ASC, and that's International Association for Spelling as Communication. So if you actually delve into the world of non-speakers, most of them are artistic, but still, if, um, but there isn't, you've seen that there's a lot of really cutting edge work done because a lot of non-speakers have um, really struggled with their motor skills. So they're using these different forms of communication. They're using these different forms of learning. Most of the non-speakers I have met um, are not reading um, simply because their eyes cannot, like they're, they yeah. really struggle with tracking eye movement. They, it's really hard for them to move from page to page. But they are visual as in like their eyes function. They just can't read. But many of them are doing community college. Many of them are doing um, um, regular four-year colleges. Um, all of them have, um, you know, these are kids and adults that were diagnosed with extremely severe autism as, um, as infants and as younger kids. And they are com completely upending the world of education. Mm. So I really think that... Um, watching and looking at non-speaking autistics is because I, I feel like I've learned so much from them. Um, and I mean, when I say them, that's it too. But there's, there's just so much going on in that world that, that we can bring into our lives. I'm going to look that up. A quick side note question. I'm also having a hard time wrapping my mind around spelling before reading. Mm -hmm. talk, can you talk to me about that? Because that is that what's happening is when you're using the, the letter board and this form of learning or showing knowledge or whatever, however you want to say it, correct me here. I'm making so many mistakes in how I'm presenting this. It's hard to imagine. This community, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Macy or whoever, or even like Sid, spelling out D-O-G before you know, oh, you even knew that that was the word. Does that make sense? Like, how do you spell before yeah. reading? He, he himself. Um, like Sid probably knew the word because I was doing these fast, fast flashcards, but okay. other kids, um, you can actually teach that in during the process. You can just say that. And there's a lot of receptive learning. So the thing is, we really confuse expressive learning, which is speech, gesture, signs, with a receptive learning, which is just absorbing the world around you. Mm -hmm. And um, most, we don't have any idea about receptive learning. All we know is about express expression, right? We know what our children can express. We have zero, zero, zero idea about what's going inside. Mm. So most kids are absorbing a way more. And even if you actively decide, I will never teach my child to read. If you actually make that wow that I'm never, I'm going to make sure my child never reads. Even so, you don't have a control over whether your child reads or not, because we're living in this world where there are words everywhere, mm -hmm. where even if they look at the news, there's probably captions there. So even if you don't want your child to read, your child will probably pick up some reading by themselves. There's... You know, this whole idea of intellectual disability is such a um, um, controversial statement, number one, is such a maybe number 10, but is, is a little bit of a disservice. But um, because while uh, I'm not disputing the idea of intellectual disability, but I think it's used too much. I think because it's used to understand receptive skills and we don't have a way of measuring understanding. We only have a way of looking at expression. So interesting. So it, it's probably there, um, but we're definitely, for kids like Sid, um, he's automatically put into a box of severe intellectual delay when that's like not mm, at all. And true. then that, yeah. So uh, what is the point? I'm, yeah, the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of kids probably can read a little bit, um, with, um, even if we don't think they can. And even if that were not the case, it's very easily taught. So spelling is pretty like, because they know like when you're learning to communicate, it can be taught in less time than you think okay. it needs. That all makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting. I was going to say intellectual disabilities are also then where then we categorize who can be in what spaces, right? Like this, if this is all you can show, you know, then you're going to have to be in this mm -hmm. place and how, what a disservice yeah. that is too our kids and our learners and people who learn differently, but also such a disservice to our whole world when we're separated from people who are different. Yeah. Yes. Very big yes. disservice. Yes. I think I want to um, 
um, I just want to say one more counterintuitive thing is that it's really important that we, even if like this teaching, all of that is optional, okay, whether we read, we teach, all of that, it's really important how we speak to our kids. Because when we think that our kids um, have a lower level of um, cognition, then we're often baby talking mm. them. We're talking at a lower level. We're, you know, that AI thing that you were talking about, like make the 10th grade Shakespeare first grade. We already have that automatic button in our, uh, in our minds where we're pushing that first grade button and talking to fifth graders like mm. the first graders. We're talking to um, a, a, like 90% of parents of a child with disability have that button in their head where they're reducing language, dropping vowels, dropping nouns and um, babyfying words and, um, and yeah, you know, yeah. just reducing this to a low level of language. And your child builds language through right. your speech. So it's really important that the way I'm talking to you is exactly the way I talk yeah. to Sid. Like, I don't change one word. I don't change one. And if he doesn't understand the word, then I can explain it. But I will not change that word because I'm speaking to him. Yes, that's so, that's so good. I think for new parents, especially in my, I don't know how Sid is with this, but my kids with Down syndrome, they're, when people baby talk to them, especially their peers, they're out. Like they're just like, they're, yeah. they're just, you can just see this thing happen <laughs> physically where, and, and I'm like, yeah, as you should be, they can't, they hate being baby talked to by people. Okay. Or at least that's what I observe uh, from them. Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah. Okay. Let's, before we wrap this conversation up, let's jump to educators. Cause we do have a lot of educators who listen to the podcast and parents who mm-hmm. then are, we're getting ready to go into the school year. We're, we're interacting with our educators Mm-hmm. And so they're listening to this episode. What advice do you give educators as they're listening to what you're saying when it comes to embracing some of these counterintuitive methods for their students with and without disabilities? Is there a, like some pieces of advice that you have and or resources you, that you would recommend educators can look into? Mm. It's, it's the same advice, but uh, maybe a little bit more aggressive is that because educators are looking at um, multiple kids throughout the day and they're spending a lot of time with them is, um, I mean, I want to start off by saying presume competence in your kids, but I've kind of stopped saying that because it's a very gentle um, uh, encouragement. I want you to move from presuming competence to assuming intelligence aggressively. So in the sense that you're not just doing them the grace mm. of thinking, oh, maybe you're slightly smart. No, it's that I know you have what you have it in you to do whatever it is that you want to do here. But it's possible that I don't have the means to just, I mean, that, that stage of humility is that if there is a gap, it is not the burden of the child to prove intelligence. The burden of proof is on the teacher to know whether you can teach that child or not. It is we as an educational system has put the entire burden of proof on the child. And that is cruel. That is just wrong. It is, um, it is our job as teachers to figure out ways that we can communicate with the child. If there is a gap, the gap is on the part of the system of the teacher. Just understanding that brings in a lot of humility. Everything doesn't have to work. It's probably not going to work. But understanding that it's not working because I have not figured out how to communicate with this kid yet. It's not that that kid doesn't know how to do mm. it, right? So drop this idea. That it's not the child's responsibility to convince you that they are smart. It is your responsibility to figure out to know that the child is smart and figure out how to reach them. Yes. So I think that's the yes. yeah, that's the number one thing that educators need to keep in mind. When if there's still a lot of educators that doubt the idea that you know they think it's just um, hardcore parents like me who are just um, you know in their own world that their children are smart that it's not reality. But again, this is where I would say um, look up a lot of the work of the non-speakers um, because you can see that. Um, these are mm. kids that were severely underestimated that have many of them have not received an education at all. And, the, and they are now talking about it. And, um, and it's, it's very easy to see how we've been completely wrong. Yeah. Wow. It makes mm-hmm. me think, so I used to be a special education teacher and I got a good education. I have, multi, I have two teaching credentials within special education. I, believed I was for my students. I saw them as capable. I presumed competence and all that. And I remember, and I, I taught high school. And so the, uh, the younger kids coming in, I taught a life skills class. So a very separate, segregated life skills class. And I had a student come in as a freshman and his parents were like, we just really want, we'll call him Steve. We just really want Steve to read. And, and my go-to, this is so embarrassing to say, but my thought was, oh, you don't teach reading in high school. Yeah. Like, that's not what we're doing here. 
you know, and just that idea of how, how I loved my students dearly as a special educator and I didn't see them, I didn't pursue them fiercely as learners and think, oh, let, let's reframe this. Like what you just said, I'm going to reframe this. This is mine mm. to figure out, not their, not their burden to hold. And I, and it makes me be, and that was 15 years ago. You can't know what you don't know, but thinking of all the people I worked with and then I send my kids into school knowing who I was as an educator. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. But that reframing is such good advice. It's such good advice. Oh, we're going to quote that. And and then my next question is to parents. I think it's the same. I'm listening to you and I'm feeling so um, encouraged. So encouraged. Oh my gosh, I needed this big time as we're getting ready to start school. But what advice, is there any additional advice then that you have for caregivers or parents specifically who are just so frustrated with the IEPs, with the placement that they are going to public school, they're choosing public school for their kids and they're in this system, right? Do you have, what advice do you have for those caregivers who are just feeling really frustrated because they're being told their child's behind? I would say that, um, don't expect the, um, I mean, fight for school to solve the problems, but don't expect it because it, there's there's a lot of baggage there. There's a lot of cultural, mm -hmm. um, you know, just systemic baggage there. So I think people should absolutely fight for, you know, schools to presume competence and work with them. But it may be a long road. And I really think that true learning happens when the child is feeling safe, not stressed. And when, I mean, we cannot learn if we're not in a safe space. And that safe space for many kids is with people that trust them. Could be school if, if you're lucky. But if you're not, then it may be just 10 minutes at home. The second thing is mm. learning doesn't have to be hours. If you can catch the child or if you can help the child find, or your student. I keep saying child, but please replace all child with student. So, um, <laughs> so but if you can help your student reach this state of engagement, of joy in learning, of this this really being like, oh my God, I want to learn this. If you have 10 minutes of that, that is more than eight hours of like, meh, I don't know why I have to sit here, right? So all a lot of my initial and learning now uh, with say teaching, learning, whatever, is really done in bursts of 10 to 15 minutes at max three times a day. To tell you the truth, Sid never does academics for more than 30 to 45 minutes a day. That's it, we're done after that. Mm -hmm. So, and then mm -hmm. he's listening to audiobooks, something, sometimes he's watching stuff on TV. It's it's or going for walks and stuff like that. But the learning yeah. doesn't have to be a long-winded process. But yeah. if you are not feeling joy, um, finally, I think I feel like I'm adding on more. It needs to be a joyful process. So it won't happen if, if we are annoyed or if we are tired, if we are bored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's so good. I really am. I'm, I'm beyond grateful that you took the time to talk with us. And I um, we have a meeting today with Macy's. She's going to a new school this year to a charter school. And we have a meeting with some of the staff there. And I feel oh, like good this luck. is the perfect timing to yeah. thank you. Just, I need, I admit as a parent, I need a reframing often. I need these reminders from people like you um, because I believe it wholeheartedly mm -hmm. in my core. I really do. And it all makes sense to me. And I want it, I want to have that all of these ideas, these counterintuitive ideas to learning to be my go-to. And I do get trapped still with mm -hmm. my kids and get frustrated that I'm not seeing what it is that I think I need to see to know that they are learners, you know, mm -hmm. or to know that they're progressing or whatever the language is even. It's just, I often need that reframing. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything, yeah, anything that we've missed that you want to add in? Um. Not really. I think we talked about everything. Yeah. For now. Yeah. Okay. Um, where can our listeners find you? So a lot of my uh, sharing is done on Instagram. It's um, my handle is drvaish sarathi. So that's doctor, but drvaish s a r a t h y. And you can also my website is functionalnutritionforkids.com, and that's where I talk about this learning. Okay. I call this nonlinear education. So that's the modality of learning that I teach. Yes, and your son Sid as. Rumor has it he's going to be a guest on our podcast yes. for October. Yes. Okay. So so looking forward to that conversation with him and that interview. Vaish, thank you again for your time and your expertise. Thank you, Heather. We really appreciate you. I hope that you have a great school thank year. Thank you. You too. And good luck with the meeting. Thank you. Bye. We're going to take a break and be right back.
All right, we're wrapping it up now, y'all. Friends, head over to luckyfew.co, theluckyfew.co, and you can use code podcast to get 10% off all narrative shifting gear over there. Josh Avis, thank you for editing this episode. Ashley Fracolossi for producing it. If you like this episode, share it with family and friends. This would be a great one to just send on over to your educators, to your IEP team. It's some good reframing some good ways to think about our kiddos as we go into this new school year. Don't forget friends to subscribe if you haven't already, and you can check out the luckyfewpodcast.com for show notes and links to things we talked about today. Make sure you're following us over on social media at the lucky few pod and listener who you are, as you are on this very day, you are slaying it and we love you. We're always cheering you on. Can't wait to be together next week until then. Goodbye. Goodbye.